Things are not always as they appear. You've probably found this to be true more often than you wish. The cool sweater or the newest tech thingy that looks so appealing in the store just did not do the trick once you got it home. That wonderful vacation that looks so great in the ads turned out to be a dud. On the other hand, there's that little town that looks so dumpy at first glance and it turned out to be a jewel upon closer inspection. A key word for today is distortion, and according to Webster, it defines distortion as follows, to twist something out of its original shape. Have any of you seen those computer programs where they distort an image? You can distort a human face to look humorous or terrifying. There we go. In the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to look at the distortions of the very perfect picture that God had set before his people. As I already said, things are not always as they appear. So it was for Israel when they demanded a king. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed to be the right time for a king. There was this vacuum in leadership, and Samuel had been a great and faithful judge, but now he's getting old, and clearly his sons are unfit for the job. So a king sounds like a really good idea to the people. But it didn't sound like a good idea to Samuel. So he consulted with God, who agreed with him, but then God told Samuel a very interesting thing. God said, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, it's me as their king that they've rejected, said God. Does that sound familiar? Israel had rejected God over and over again, bucking Moses every inch of the way when they were in the wilderness, refusing to enter the promised land. They continually, and once they were in the promised land, they, they settled that land and they continually turned towards other gods. And everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. They rejected God because they were having trouble trusting God. And it turned into chaos. So then the, at the bottom of this history of reject, rejection is a pull to conform to their culture that was surrounding them. Again, this is a familiar story for us. Aren't we the same? That we too tend to be drawn irresistibly to our culture it's the new iPhone or that new house or the vacation that someone else has and we see it and we want it for ourselves. It's almost a knee-jerk reaction. Have you ever noticed how small children, let's say toddlers, are playing with a toy and you have two ch children that are playing together and the uh, one child always wants what the other child has. It can be my kids can play with a toy. They may not have played with that toy for six months, and one of them picks it up, and all of a sudden the other one wants the exact same toy that the, that the other one has. It's pretty well ingrained in us. It's not only things that we all want and covet, but even more troubling as we become adults, it's also values and behaviors. The way others speak, what they do, the friends they keep, the values that they endorse, even as Christians, we still tend to conform to those around us. And Israel was meant to be different from others, showing who God is and what it, seems, what it means to be God's people. And like Israel, we have also failed in being the light in the darkness that Jesus wants us to be. Instead of being the engine for our society chugging along, 
Unfortunately, the church has often become the caboose. So in Israel, wanting to be like all the other countries, when they demanded a king, it was not the good idea that it first seemed to be, and Samuel warned them that there would be a cost. He warned them about taxes. He warned them about the draft. He warned them that kings tend to get greedy and corrupt, and finally there would end up being, uh, they'd have a sorry impact on everyone's finances and families. Getting your own way is often very costly. It's going to cause you grief down the road. Samuel tried to warn them, but the people were stubborn. So you'd think that in the book of 1 Samuel, God would just put his foot down and say no, and that would be the end of it. But that's not the way God works, is it? You see, God's ways are not our ways. As we read in Isaiah earlier today, God's ways are higher and better than ours, and the good news today is that God's purposes will win the day in the end. God has this upper story going on that's much bigger than what we can see in our world. God knows so much more about what's going to happen and that there will be a good ending in spite of ourselves. And the reason for that is because God is faithful even when we are not. Even when God's kingship is rejected by us, God's love perseveres. So God allowed them to go ahead with their plan. In fact, he did more than that. God chose a king for them. If you read in chapters 9 and 10 in 1 Samuel, you'll find that God gives this plan every single chance. The choosing of King Saul is an amazing story. Saul looked good at first. He was handsome and he was strong and he was a head taller than anyone else. And in the beginning, he sought God's will. He went out and found Samuel, this visionary prophet leader, and he consulted with him and asked for his advice. God's spirit filled Saul. God transformed Saul. And in the beginning, Saul looked like a good choice. God worked with them in this plan. But things are not always what they seem. It didn't last. Saul had some fatal flaws. Impatience, jealousy, and indecision. His egotistical character was not able to withstand the power and the corruption that kingship often brings. Saul eventually stopped repenting of his sin. He stopped seeking God's forgiveness. And then God rejected Saul as king, looking for another who was a, had a, man, who was a man after God's own heart. Saul stood tall at first. But he fell pretty hard in the end. And God allowed it to happen. So there's more going on here than meets the eye. Rejection and faithfulness are ongoing themes in 1 Samuel. Rejection and faithfulness are ongoing themes in much of the Old Testament. Hannah, Samuel's mom, was faithful even though she was rejected. She was barren and tormented by the co-wife and she prayed to God for a son. And when God granted her prayer, she faithfully offered up this child, Samuel, to serve God. The faithfulness of Hannah is a foreshadowing of the faithfulness of Elizabeth and Mary, both of whom became pregnant in impossible situations, both who set their sons aside for very special service. Both of their sons suffered rejection. Mary's song, what the church now calls the Magnificat, Magnificat is reminiscent of Hannah's song of praise. She rejoices in God, whose ways are not our ways, who brings down the proud but exalts the humble. So there's this pattern of rejection and faithfulness that we see in 1 Samuel. You see it again in 
um, this John the Baptist and Jesus in the New Testament. Samuel is another example of faithfulness. Most of these judges were unlikely heroes, full of faults, full of doubts, but Samuel stood above the crowd. The greatest of all the judges, faithful to God, faithful to his calling, even as a boy he never wavered from telling the truth, even when the truth hurt. There are other examples of faithfulness, but I think the greatest hero in this book would be God, who, though rejected by his people, is faithful to those same people, faithful to his promises. He never goes back on his word, and being faithful, God also calls them and us to, re- to be faithful in return and to make God king in our lives, to serve him with all our heart. God worked, through, God worked with Israel even though they made a poor choice. And when he, God did that, he set a standard for what kingship is. In Deuteronomy, God gave future kings this instruction. He says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, this new king is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. It's to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And do not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. A good king should have a copy of God's law at hand and read it every day. This is how you stay faithful to God. You read God's word daily, you follow it, and this is what greatness is all about. So the rest of the Old Testament follows the succession of Israel's kings. There's some good kings, there were some that were pretty bad, good kings followed God's law, evil kings ignored it and did what they wanted, but for good or for evil, God let this kingship play itself out throughout the whole Old Testament. He let the consequences follow, but never abandoned his people. And through it all, he set up for Israel the expectation of a peaceable kingdom, what a kingdom should be. It's a vision of the kingdom of God where justice and mercy prevail became this is the gold standard of what God wanted, and this is, became the gold standard of what people soon longed for. Now, if you fast forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a young man who begins to walk the hills of Israel, announcing the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his ministry, the first thing he said was, the kingdom of God is near. People listened up. They were expecting this gold standard of kingship, looking for it, longing for it, and so their ears perked up. Jesus started talking about God's kingdom. It was a major theme of the New Testament. He talked, he told parables about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or yeast or a great net or a farmer. He said God's kingdom is of far greater value than anything else. It's a treasure hidden in a field for which you sell all you have. It's the pearl of such great value that nothing else will compare. The kingdom of God may not seem like much, but it's one thing that makes your life worth living. It's a new thing, and it's not of this world. It's different from what you're going to expect, and it turns out to be far, far better than you would ever imagine. So what does it mean, this kingdom of God? Is it heaven? 
Yes and no. The kingdom of God involves heaven, but it's also here and now. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. It's wherever and whenever God is honored as king. It's not a place like Israel or Africa. It's not a time like 1000 BC or 2017 AD. A kingdom has everything to do with its ruler. It's wherever God rules. And God wants to rule your life. A teacher once asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And the teacher said, that's it? That is indeed the greatest commandment. What did Jesus say then? Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is when and where you love Jesus more than anything else in your life. It's the thing of great value that you've wanted all along. So let the king go. Don't try to be your own king. Reach instead for God's kingdom. Conformity? Do not conform to this world. It's going to sell you down the river. Conform rather to Jesus and be transformed by his spirit. Is there a cost? Oh, yes. Following Jesus is costly. It will cost your life. But since he loves you and wants the best for you, hold nothing back. Give him your all. What about rejection? If we learn anything from the story of Samuel and Saul, it's this. Reject not God, but reject your own self-centeredness. Reject your tendency to go, on, go your own way. Basically, it's rejecting your sinful nature. That's what's dragging you down. Instead, embrace the kingdom. What would your life look like if you set different priorities for yourself and for your family seeking God's will? What would change in your life if you made intentional decisions about who you're going to hang out with? Embrace the life God has freely given you because we are the ones who represent God to the world. We represent Christ to others. Most of the people in our world will get their take on God from us. And our interactions with them may be the only glimpse of God's grand design and God's upper story that they ever see. If we are the only Bible some people ever read, we don't want to be the ones that distort the image of Jesus to others. This doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It means pretending you're not perfect. Yes, it means not pretending we are perfect. That's what I want to say. You don't have to be perfect in order to represent Christ to others. What it does mean is you can't pretend that you are perfect. God wants us to be different, not weird, but different. God doesn't want us to be just like everyone else. He wants us to be known by how we love people. He wants us to look like Jesus. Not only do we celebrate the people who have gone before us, but we thank God that we are too are counted and that God gives us this opportunity to embrace the kingdom of God in order to reach people that don't yet know Christ. Things are not always as they seem. It's not the king or the culture or that Christmas catalog that's going to give you what you want. It's God's kingdom. That's where the best of life is to be found, freely given to you in Christ. Amen.